0: We did a ride, um, the Durham Destroyer Full Monty, which was a 320-kilometer gravel day that goes out to the northeast of Toronto. And, you know, it was a great taster of what what Unbound is hopefully going to be like, minus the tornadoes that came that day. But we survived.
1: (laughs) Wait, there were tornadoes at the Durham Destroyer?
0: Yeah, we yeah, there were tornadoes in Barrie that day and we we were at the north end of the loop in Fenland Falls when the storm came and it was it was pretty crazy.
1: Welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast this is a big episode we are going back in time we are delving into some present racing and we are looking ahead into the future to help me do all this is matt hansen how's it going matt
2: real super real super
1: uh we went on a we went on a ride this weekend, didn't we?
2: We sure did, uh, at the crack of dawn.
1: Well, that's dad time for me, so you were very uh, good to meet me at um, yeah, the crack of dawn.
2: Good ride, though. Nice weather for,
1: for now, for May. I know. Eh? It, it, it was good. I mean, it was pretty chill. I was a bit of a jerk on the hills, though. I was feeling... Well, it, there were ambushes. You didn't know when they were coming, and I would just, like
2: yeah it's okay though I forgive you it's
1: okay I've already complained to HR (laughs) yeah I'm sure you'll get a very sympathetic ear there so what we've got lined up is a lot of stuff as I mentioned off the top the first item in the show is going to be another check-in with Alex Catterford our our man our Canuck at the Giro
2: and I gotta say, this show is good because it's got—it's really mixed terrain, isn't it? But we'll get to that.
1: Oh, it's true. We cover like almost every surface.
2: We just need to get in the water.
1: No, that's—that's that's our friends at triathlon. They do that. That's not us. Oh, uh, right, 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 right. But uh, yeah, we're gonna check in with Alex. And how, how have you been enjoying the uh, the, the old Giro d'Italia?
2: I mean, I think it's, uh, one thing I'll say is the finishes are something else. I mean, to watch it, the tour is obviously the tour, but some of the finishes are just incredible, you know, like the corners and the, the sort of the little hairpin at the end and, and just the, the general racing without having one clear, distinct favorite, it just makes for some pretty great stuff.
1: I did like, yeah, uh, going into this race, there wasn't a clear rate a favorite like a pogachar or a, a Roglic, but, um... I don't know, there's there's still a few stages to go. The race isn't over. But I don't really see anybody unseating Richard Carapaz at the moment.
2: You never know. Stranger things have happened.
1: Oh, for sure. And yes, I know. I'm not um I'm not saying the race is done. But um, yep. Yeah, you know that, that old uh Ineos Grenadiers, they know a thing or two about um, winning a Grand Tour.
2: It's not their first uh, rodeo, as it were. Or...
1: No. I was kind of rooting for, for Nibali on on Stage 14. He, he had a good shot there. I have to admit, I was a little like, oh, it'd be nice if he could win here. But
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously all the kind of fans of, of cycling and were excited to see him back in the mix, but I don't think he wants to be in the mix. I think he wants to win. You know, like, he's not happy for the for the accolades he wants to get number one so
1: yeah what do you think uh a stage win or a podium which is uh, more valuable to him
2: i don't know i mean i think he probably would take anything right now because he knows that time is running out for his you know his his finale here um but uh i think a stage one's always kind of special right
1: for sure for sure well let's now hear from alex catterford and his impressions from being deep deep within the giro d'italia Alex Caterford, it is the second rest day of the Giro. How have you spent your rest day so far?
3: Yes, yeah, so we're on the second rest day now. What would typically be the first rest day, but we got an extra one being in Hungary this year. It was a pretty relaxed day, all in all. We actually went out this morning to visit one of our sponsors' locations, Vini Fantini, to one of their big uh, wine bottling facilities. So it was actually quite cool to see um, kind of the process behind the wine bottling there. And then just a really nice, easy spin back along the coast home, about an hour back to the hotel. And then after that, mostly just trying to catch up on a bit of sleep, take a nap, get a massage, see the chiropractor. And yeah, really just get your feet up and rest up for the next week coming.
1: Did did you get to take home any samples of the wine or did any samples come home for you?
3: (laughs) We usually have some in the bus, but I mean, we were there at... 10 30 um a.m so we weren't doing too much wine sampling at the time
1: overall how was the past week of racing which was the first full week of the giro
3: yeah the past week of racing was was quite nice it was a nice mix of stages that we had in there we had um a couple of really big mountain days like the day at the blockhouse but then we also had some cool like city circuits like in uh down in Naples. So, but overall, it's just been kind of hard, fast racing. Most days have been um, we're racing from far out, racing all day. And um, yeah, not an easy week for sure. So um, in this upcoming week, we have a couple more sprint days. But then, um, yeah, get back into the mountains again.
1: On stage four up Mount Etna, you got into the main break of the day. The day before that, you actually discussed uh, breakaways and the importance of choosing the right breakaway to join. Was that breakaway on the Mount Etna stage a good breakaway to be in?
3: Yeah, being up there in the breakaway on the Mount Etna stage, it was obviously the place you needed to be to win the stage, because we saw in the end um, the winner from the stage and the current holder of the, uh, the pink jersey, at least on this first day, came from, came from that stage. So I was happy to be there and be in the position to... To be going for the stage win, in the end, on the last 20k climb, I didn't, didn't, just, didn't quite have it to follow those guys all the way up. But like we said, that was, um, that was a good day to be in the breakaway because it obviously was one of the days where it paid off and went all the way to the finish.
1: What was your role on stage five, the day that finished in a sprint in Messina?
3: So on stage five, we had, yeah, a sprint going into Messina and in what would seem like normally like a typical sprint day. But the difference was we had a big climb about halfway through the stage. And actually on that climb, a few of the sprinters, uh, Cavendish and Ewan got distanced. So once we hit the bottom of the climb, I actually had to ride basically the last 60K of the stage um, full on on the front with a couple other teams whose sprinters made it so that the sprinters who didn't make it over the climb would come back. So it actually ended up being a pretty heavy day for me in the end. But we were happy because the work we did meant that um, there's probably three sprinters who missed out in the final sprint. And that let Yakima come third on
1: that day. So that sounds pretty grueling. You know, you were in the breakaway one day, you're hauling at the front on, on the next day. Um, yeah. What's your recovery and and your rest and your recovery like in, in the midst of, of the week?
3: Yeah. So with being in the breakaway all day on the Mount Etna stage and then pulling on the front the next day all day, it was obviously two really big days back to back. Um, so really when it comes to a grand tour you just gotta kind of look you gotta look for the recovery when you have it that means getting a good massage and um resting and sleeping as much as you can just having good habits outside of the race um i also did get quite lucky because then once we hit stage six obviously if you if you watch the last 10k it was quite hectic for the sprint but before the last 10k i'm not going to lie it was the easiest bike race i've ever done so As much as it wasn't a recovery day, because it was still five hours on the bike, it was uh, not too demanding of the stage.
1: Stage eight was the shortest stage in Naples. And on your Instagram feed, I think it was before the stage, you mentioned the famous pizza from that city. Were you able to get some za after the stage?
3: So during the stage in Naples, no. Unfortunately, we had to kind of hurry up out of there. And um, unfortunately, we didn't get any pizza. I was a bit disappointed because I'm a big pizza fan. And um, it's obviously the the local food of Naples. So it was too bad. But I guess I'll have to make a trip back there at some point to to get a slice.
1: Before the rest day was stage nine. That was up Blockhouse. Uh, The stage itself featured 5,000 meters of climbing. Tell me how you managed a big day like that.
3: So, yes, a big day I got to block 5,000 meters of climbing. It was almost a six-and-a-half-hour day. I forget exactly how long it was. But you just got to be super on top of the main thing on a day like that is your nutrition, making sure that the night before the morning of you've had enough carbohydrates and also on the bike that it's impressive how many calories you can go through. So just staying hydrated, staying fueled up is um, what can make the difference between finishing those stages fine and finishing them – you know, completely empty.
1: Tell me about the daily routine in the team bus. What's it like for the team before a stage or even after, actually?
3: The daily routine in team bus is normally, um, normally we try to arrive about an hour and a half before the stage starts. And sometimes in the Jira, the transfers can be a bit long. You can have an hour transfer before. So sometimes um, it can be like that. So generally when we're moving, people are either taking a nap or, calling home or uh, watching some TV, listening to podcasts or something like that. Once we get to the start, is kind of when we have the the meeting. That's the main thing. So we meet the directors of a prepared PowerPoint where, to be honest, most of it is um, about like race, the course knowledge and just pictures and photos and stuff like that um, so that we know what we're up against. And then we'll kind of go into the tactics for a little bit. Afterwards, then people, you know, you get changed, get your food, get your radio on, and um just kind of chill out until it's time to start. And then after the stages, really it depends on when we all arrive, but you come in, shower up, get your food, and then slowly, you know, mean often we'll have a longer transfer back to the hotel again. um One nice thing that we do do in the team, though, is that when we're all on the team bus after the stage, we do uh, just a quick debrief, 10 15 minutes, and just talk about the stage. and what we did well and what we can do better so that we can keep improving going forward.
1: How are you feeling as you near the halfway point of the Giro?
3: Yeah, so as I'm nearing the halfway point, I'm obviously you feeling it in my legs a little bit at this point, but I'm sure everyone is as well. It hasn't been an easy Giro. But overall, I feel that I'm handling it well, and um, we'll be looking for some opportunities in the second half.
1: Right on. Thank you very much, Alex. No problem, man. This episode of the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast is supported by MS Bike. I can think of a few reasons why you should do an MS Bike event. The big one? You'll help those with MS. Canada has one of the highest rates of MS in the world. Another reason is that the riding is great, and all of the events are in person now. In June, there's a ride in BC's Fraser Valley and one from Airdrie to Olds, Alberta. Finally, your fundraising efforts can also get you cool rewards, such as MS Bike t-shirts, shorts, and new this year, an MS Bike jacket to round out the kit. But back to reason number one, you can make a difference. So head to msbike.ca, register and start fundraising now. So now we are going to change gears to uh, single gears. We are going to look back at the track action in Milton. We were there on uh, day two. This was your first World Cup, well, Nations Cup. What did you think of it?
2: They're a lot faster than the Junior Nationals. Not much faster, but somewhat faster. Uh, it was great. I mean, to see all the, uh, the international talent you know, in Milton was... Um, I mean, it's still sort of surreal to me to think that there's this facility that attracts, you know, the world's best. So, uh, yeah, but it was great, great action, great riding and great to see the Canadians up there.
1: Exactly. Uh, Especially in the sprint. Kelsey Mitchell, I think, was maybe not not super stoked about silver in in the sprint and bronze in the team sprint. But she she got gold in Kieran, which was great.
2: And it's not like she got beat by a slouch. You know, she got beat by the world champion. So that's that's okay.
1: Yeah, and as, as, as Kelsey Mitchell will point out, like she's beaten her and she's been beaten by her, by Emma Hinzes. So, the, um, you know, it's a good competition. But um, it's not Kelsey Mitchell who we have in the pod. While we were in the infield, I spoke with Nairi Barraclough and Sarah Van Dam, uh, two of the, the younger riders there. And um, Nairi Barraclough, she was fourth in the team pursuit. We spoke with her after the scratch race, but, uh, she kept racing that weekend and we'll, we'll talk more about that after her interview. And Sarah Van Dam, uh, do you remember her elimination race? She nearly got completely eliminated.
2: I sure do. I was impressed with the fact that how quickly they got up because that looks like they're going 55 K an hour. And I couldn't believe they jumped back on their bikes without hesitation. And, uh, it was impressive. I mean, I'm sure it hurt later, but in the moment, they probably didn't feel a thing.
1: That's right, yeah, Sarah Van Dam and another rider, um, well, connected and both went down, and the, uh, the race was neutralized for a little bit, and Sarah Van Dam got back on and did quite well, did quite well.
2: I bet she did adrenaline didn't hurt either. that little shot you know, of adrenaline. She should have waited till three laps to go. <laughs>
1: All right, let's hear from both Nairi Baraklaw and Sarah Van Dam. Nairi, um, it's day two at Milton uh, Nations Cup. Today you did the scratch race. Can you tell me a bit about your strategy or your plan? Because we saw you in the front working really hard for, for a few laps.
4: Yeah, so big sprints aren't necessarily my strong point, so I was really aiming to put in an attack with six to eight laps to go and get a gap and see what happened there and I wanted to just sort of go from far out and try to hold on to it. Um, it didn't work out. There was an attack a little earlier which set it up really well because we caught them and I tried to go from there, but I had a big group on my wheel and so it didn't work out for me today. And then just kind of got caught back in the bunch sprint.
1: And so how did you feel, though, about, like, you had your strategy, you worked it, like, yeah, what are your thoughts about that?
4: I'm happy I went for it. I really like to race aggressive and to have a goal and to go try execute it. And it didn't work out today, Um, but I'm excited to keep racing hard tomorrow and it was nice to get into the bunch and feel things out a bit so disappointed with where I finished but I'm glad I went out and tried it and didn't just decide to sit in the bunch.
1: Now this is the second Nations Cup of the year the first one was in Glasgow you weren't at Glasgow but you were in Europe around that time can you tell me what race you did and what what brought you uh, overseas?
4: Yeah I was in Ghent Belgium for a C1 uh, we were looking for UCI points mainly, getting a bit of race experience. So got to race Omnium, Scratch, Elimination, points race and Madison while we were there. It was a super full weekend and it was a really good time. It was a, like, a fast field, not quite Nations Cup level, but nice to get experience and to get some comfort in the group and just to get yeah, get a chance to race before we got into the rest of the season.
1: Now, it, to me the, the UCI points scheme seems nebulous is it clear to you what you need to get where you need to go
4: yeah so you need 250 uci points to start any race at a nation's cup worlds maybe that's about it but 250 points can be hard to come by especially in north america so at like a c1 level race in belgium you get 200 points for winning a race so it was a way to kind of boost up the events i already had points in but for like the elimination race, which I started with zero points in, even winning there wouldn't have been enough to get me points to race. So it can be a bit tricky to actually find enough small races to be able to race certain events at a higher level. But yeah, that's what we were trying to do.
1: And what are your your goals sort of like past this weekend, future goals for the year and maybe onwards?
4: Yeah, I'm gonna go, the next six weeks, I'm doing a bit of a roadblock, doing Joe Martin right away and then Road Nationals, which are actually at home in Edmonton for me, so I'm really excited. And then back into track, I'm hoping for Commonwealth Games, uh, maybe the Third Nations Cup, and then looking towards worlds and seeing what we can do there.
1: Well, good luck and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Sarah Van Dam, you just raced the elimination race. Yes. And, well, Tell us about that race, how did it go?
5: Yeah, it was uh, going really well. I was just uh, focusing on having an exit and keeping my space. Um, And yeah, I finished sixth, I went down, but I jumped back up and got out there again.
1: That was impressive, because you had a spill with another rider. Did you guys just bump wheels or something?
5: Yeah, uh, it was tight at the line and her hips were in front of my bars and she came down and just knocked them. So yeah, I didn't have full control of my bars, so I went down.
1: And yeah, you got up pretty fast. What were you feeling? Like a lot of us have crashed before and our first instinct is to get, just get back up. But, like, did you do the quick assessment to make sure you're okay and stuff like that?
5: Yeah, I think uh, adrenaline takes over pretty quick when you uh, hit the deck. Uh, I just focused on protecting my head. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I looking back, I should have taken a few laps and done a better check over my bike. But, yeah, like I said, adrenaline gets you going again.
1: <laughs> totally. And you had about, I think, six laps to, to join in again. And so then once you joined in, were you were you focused back on back on track so to speak
5: yeah um, I had to do a little bit of chasing um, to get back into the pack as uh, they were neutralized but um, yeah once we got back together and the gun went um, yeah I was race ready and I just I had a little bit of a a blip in thought I was I got boxed in um, on the back straight and I just didn't have an exit so it's the name of the game though
1: so it, it really is a, a fascinating strategy. So, I and when I was watching you throughout the race. You'd be at the back. You'd be like making sure you're at the front. Um, does it, How long does it take to sort of master this strategy, or do you ever really master it?
5: I think you have to be adaptable uh, in the race because you can have a strategy, but you can it, it can obviously uh, change throughout the entire race. So just. Being aware of where you are in the pack constantly and having enough time to get out and get in a good position is really key. And you're
1: feeling okay? No injuries? or?
5: Yeah, I'm ready to go again.
1: That's great. What is the plan for you, say, later in the year and even into the next few years?
5: Yeah, so we have uh, Commonwealth Games coming up, so I'm hoping to make uh, that team. And then uh, I'm also going to be heading down to uh, Cali to race the Omnium. All right. Well, good luck and thanks for your time. Thank you very much.
1: And that was Sarah Van Dam taking us through her, yeah, her (laughs) very challenging elimination race, but still, it's impressive how she got back up and duked it out for sixth place.
2: You know, the elimination race is one of my favorite races, and I think it's one of the most spectator-friendly races, you know, because it's just down to the wire the whole time and, uh, I've always enjoyed watching it, even when it was called "Devil Take the Hindmost," which I guess "Eliminations" a little little better title.
1: I knew you'd bring that up. You 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 like that old timey name <laughs> for for that? I feel like I feel like that's the um, the label of um, Unibrew bottle instead of like <laughs> Mondit, You'll have like you'll have like Devil Take the Hindmost.
2: <laughs> well, they still call them Madison. I'm just waiting for them to change that to the. Two-person sling or something.
1: Right, <laughs> fair, fair. Oh, you—you're such a traditionalist.
2: I try, I try.
1: You—you you really do. Anyway, um, Nairi Baraclo went on to race the Omnium, and it seems the uh, experience she got in just the straight-up scratch race helped her with uh, the scratch race of the Omnium, which she won. She took it. She lapped the field and then kept up for the uh, for the win. And she did finish the Omnium in fifth, so pretty good, pretty good showing for, for her.
2: Yeah, and I think when she was doing the Scratch thing Omnium, she probably had more cards to play because people are kind of watching each other a little more, so she knew she would kick a flyer and take advantage of the people competing for the first spot in the Omnium, so that was clever tactics on her part.
1: And now we will switch to yet another wonderful cycling discipline, a dirtier, bumpier version. It's time to talk gravel. I feel like we're, we're heading into peak gravel season, especially with unbound gravel on the horizon. And we spoke with a friend of the magazine, friend of the pod, Andrew Randall. He is going to unbound with, um, with two other riders. that are going to work together, uh, all three of them, uh, to take on that obscenely long, obscenely long race.
2: Obscenely long. Too long.
1: You were invited on one of his training rides. Uh, we actually mentioned his training ride in, in, in the chat, um, and you uh, you declined.
2: Well, I, what's interesting to me is, you know, I, I do know this young fellow a little bit, and in, in the pod he said something about how, um, you know, he was never a miles guy, and that made me laugh because th- this guy rode like six hours all the time, but I guess, you know, 300-kilometer training ride isn't quite this, on gravel isn't quite the same as a five- or six-hour ride on, by road, but he's always a diligent trainer, so I'm not surprised he's kind of doing these epic rides, even though he sounded a little sheepish, like he was doing too much at one point. He kind of wanted to backpedal there, but I think he knows what he's doing.
1: I think so too. Um, Andrew's a, a coach. He's helped a lot of people uh, improve their riding. Yeah, I think he knows a thing or two about a thing or two. But uh, yeah, it is, it is interesting, just the, um, the sheer volume. And he went out on a, a pretty... Uh, wait, what was the weather on the day they went out for their...
2: Well, there was a storm. I think it took them 12 and a half hours. I think it took them 12, you know, which was shorter than the 15 hours I thought it was going to be. But still about seven hours too long for me. So, yeah, and they, I think in the middle of it, they had a, a thunderstorm and there was a tornado in some parts of Ontario. So it was. Uh,
1: well, that was the previous version of their 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 full Monty ride. But again, they seem to be storm magnets. I hope, uh, I hope that doesn't happen when they. Uh,
2: well, if you ride for 12 hours, you're bound to get all kinds of weather.
1: <laughs> You're just out long enough to see weather systems Yeah, past. just by
2: by stats. But I think the last ride they did too on, on the Saturday, there was some rain too. I think they just, yeah, I think they're just, they should be storm chasers and film it.
1: <laughs> We're also going to speak with another uh, accomplished gravel racer, but who's a, a cyclocross racer first, uh, Michael Vandenham. And we get into um, some of the common elements or what... What gravel brings to his cyclocross riding, because he is a cyclocross rider first, and he, he admits that. And, um, but yeah, he has some interesting ideas about um, what gravel can do for his cross season.
2: And interesting, too, again, with training, how he said that it, you know, it's gone from this kind of loosey-goosey discipline, gravel. He even said himself a few years ago the result he had he wouldn't be able to do without diligent gravel training. And just the same with Randall. They both talk about how, you know, gravel is no longer just this kind of pickup sport. It's something that's requiring specific training.
1: All right. Well, let us hear from Andrew Randall and then Michael Vandenham. Andrew Randall, soon you'll be racing unbound gravel. What drew you to that race?
0: Um, More like who drew me to the race? um Ah. i know holly clark who rides for the toronto hustle team and she's big into gravel and we met one another on a ride a few years ago and and uh she kind of got me into it it's really her that that has driven the been the impetus to go to unbound
1: Uh aha so you'll be there holly will be there and you'll have i believe uh, a third teammate that you'll be riding with
0: Yeah, Mark Mazer is also going to come with us. We were trying to get a bunch of people in to do it together, but the three of us are in. It's an opportunity to go and do a big event together and and have a big trip.
1: Most people know you from your career on the road, on teams such as Symmetrics and SpiderTech powered by C10. For about 10 years, you've been working as a coach. But tell us about maybe some of your other connections you have with gravel.
0: I mean, I got my start in cycling on the mountain bike, so it starts there, I guess. But really, the gravel has become, you know, when I finished racing, my relationship with cycling had to change. And the gravel has opened up a whole realm of exploration and fun. You know, it just allows us to do stuff that we can't do on a road bike. And I think that's been the real draw to the gravel side of things. You know, living in Toronto as well, the gravel bike is amazing because it allows you to get off the roads and ride in the parks and do all these trails that no one knows about it's it's really an amazing way to get around and do stuff you wouldn't do otherwise
1: was it easy to get into unbound
0: it's a, it's a lottery so that's purely chance which is great that mark uh, was also able to get in which which so that's it's cool that there's three of us that get to go together
1: so the three of you like applied for the lottery and then had to keep your fingers crossed that you would all get in
0: well so toronto hustle was going as a team, but they deferred for a couple of years with the pandemic. And then, you know, chatting with Holly over the last couple of years and this whole idea burgeoned into let's go to unbound. And so Mark and I put our names in the lottery, along with a few other people that I work with, but unfortunately they didn't get in.
1: <laughs> when did you start preparing for the race? I would say actually
0: last year. Holly and I were chatting last year and I said, Oh, you know, you're there's no there was no racing, right? I mean covid and all this stuff last year so even then there wasn't much going on in terms of events so i said to her you know we should probably do something this year to give you a sense of what unbound is going to be like so we went out and actually mark mark came with us on that ride even before we had talked about going to unbound but mark came with us and we we did a ride um the Durham destroyer full Monty, which was a 320 kilometer gravel day that goes out to the northeast of Toronto and you know it was a great taster of what what Unbound is hopefully gonna be like. Minus the tornadoes that came that day, but we survived.
1: <laughs> Wait, there were tornadoes at the Durham Destroyer?
0: Yeah, we yeah, there were tornadoes in Barrie that day and we, we were at the north end of the loop in Fenland Falls when the storm came and it was it was pretty crazy.
1: Well yeah hopefully you won't see twisters in uh, <laughs> in Unbound. No. Should someone who's targeting, you know, a two hundred miler or a three hundred and twenty kilometer race like Unbound, should this person start preparing as far as a year in advance, doing uh, similar distance rides of a similar distance?
0: Ah, well, I mean, it's not it's not like you're going to pick up and start doing three hundred kilometers off the bat. But I do think, you know, of course, it depends on your level of fitness and how much you've been riding, but. I, yeah I think if you've got this goal in mind that you want to do this big event, you know I mean with most of cycling it's the aerobic side of things that's so important, and that takes time and you know you need to build up your body to do the mileage I mean, the way it worked last year is we got that big ride in our legs as a as a real sense of how things were going to be so I don't know that you need to maybe do three hundred kilometers you know it's maybe a bit it's a pretty big day, but you mean you, you you definitely don't want to go there having done hundred kilometer rides and then think you're just going to string string three hundred kilometer rides together suddenly and bang out Unbound, you know.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Um. Now you're, if I understand correctly, you're doing a three hundred kilometer ride almost two weeks from Unbound. Is that is that part of your plan?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's maybe a little long, but I think. For for everyone's kind of, I, I mean, I've got a bunch of clients that are that are doing some big rides this year, two hundred kilometer days and stuff like this. So we are going to do kind of an unbound prep ride again, sort of that full Monty loop with some minor variations to, you know, I just put the mileage in the legs a little bit. We're just going to pace it super steady, not make it too hard, and, and just just control the pace so it doesn't crush us but yeah put in a big day so that we can test everything that we're going to apply at at unbound because i think that's a bit that's a big part of the preparation is creating a plan around the day with with all the details that go into that
1: yeah i mean i don't know if i'd want to do 300 clicks before i had to do 300 clicks with only <laughs> 2 weeks to separate it. but you did say that it the 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 pre-ride is is more of a steady pace not a race pace
0: yeah i mean the funny thing is I I mean, I was never a mileage person when I, or I never imagined myself doing some stuff like this, but I don't know. It's different on the gravel bike and it's fun. I don't know. The whole attitude is just different and it's enjoyable. It's, I mean, of course you're tired and, you know, you're a bit uncomfortable come the end of the day and it's going to take some recovery, but we'll have a full two weeks to recover. And I think for You know, the the, the big challenge for most of us as, as riders is to actually find the time to do the mileage and all this kind of stuff. So I think doing this kind of prep ride for everybody who's going to Unbound, like the Toronto Hustle team is going to come with us and myself and Mark and a couple of other people that are doing big, long rides. But for those of us going to Unbound, it'll just be a good way to really, you know, make sure we put in the time and do a big ride and then we'll have a couple of easy weeks to recover before we actually go to the race.
1: What are some specific equipment choices you've made for Unbound?
0: It's, it's a, been an interesting exploration of things. Equipment-wise, I think one of the most interesting things I've done, for me anyway, is I started waxing my chain. Because, you know, what, by these rides we were doing last year, and you're in the rain, and, you know, before you, it only takes one mud puddle, and your, your chain is suddenly making lots of noise, and all the oil is gone. Whereas, and, and, and in Unbound, I think there's two, maybe three river crossings. And so the wax combined with a supersonic cleaner to you clean the chain before you, or ultrasonic cleaner, you clean the chain before you put the wax on, I think is going to be a great way of, of, you know, managing a piece of the puzzle that we don't really think about very much. And actually help us with the efficiency side of things. And uh, yeah, it's felt really good having a clean, super clean wax chain. It's been cool.
1: Now tell me a bit about some of the support you, you will have during the race. Like there's two checkpoints, I believe, and you'll have people meeting you there?
0: Let's say every 60 to 70 kilometers, there is a rest stop. But the way the race works you have, you have to have a support crew, but they are only allowed to see you at two of the checkpoints. So the way it works is the first rest stop, I'll call it, is like is actually a water oasis, which is put on by the race where you only get water. Then you have a checkpoint where you see your support team where you can get, you can get support, you can get food and everything from them. Then there's another water oasis and then a final checkpoint and then the finish. So the interesting thing with the planning side of things is you need to carry enough food to get through, you know, maybe 130 kilometers because that first point in the race is, it's it's just water. So you have to have enough product with you to fuel yourself for a good, you know, I don't know, five, five plus hours, let's say 25 K an hour, you know. Like six hours, you need enough fuel for six hours, almost, to get through to the first uh, checkpoint with your team.
1: Will you be carrying that fuel in in a on your back or various parts around your bike?
0: Yeah, I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a camelback and two water bottles, and I think uh, a top tube bag. Hopefully, that's gonna be enough to uh, to be able to manage uh, plenty of you know product along the way.
1: What do you think will be one of the biggest challenges during the race for you?
0: I think, well, so, I mean, I we did a big ride up in Malmer, north of Toronto, on some pretty hilly terrain, six hours or something, and we were testing our fueling, you know, how many calories per hour are you going to eat, and the goal should be, let's say, three to 400 calories an hour. Everyone's different in how much they can take in, but the more, the better, and I think actually maintaining and keeping up and keeping track of your fueling which is probably the best way to improve your performance (laughs) is going to be the hardest thing and making sure you're actually because it's a lot you know drinking a bottle an hour plus a bar or whatever it might be to get your 400 calories it's actually quite a bit so i think that's going to be probably the most challenging side of things to make sure we have a good ride
1: it's like the eating contest element of the race that no one really thinks about.
0: Yeah, very much so, I would say. I mean, it's become it's becoming more of a thing and it, you know, cycling when I grew up was like don't eat, you'll get skinny. <laughs> but now things are moving much more towards you know, when you're on the bike you need to maximize your caloric intake to to improve your performance. So it's it's but it's something you need to practice and you need to dial it in with what products are you going to use and what works for you and making sure you're actually me- you know, measuring or counting your calories properly.
1: What about like, um, fuel fatigue or like, you know, you, you, you get to a point where you're like, I can't eat another bar. So uh, have you thought about like variety in your pack?
0: Yeah. I mean, so actually that, that full Monty ride that we did last year was already, we were starting then to try, ideas and test things out. And I I found the fuel fatigue, a big part of it is making sure you have a variety of flavors. So your palate doesn't get tired. So I have three different drink mixes that I'll be using. One's One's a lemon lime, one's an orange, and I don't know what the other one is, raspberry or something, you know, so it's always, it's always a bit different. And the one is saltier than the other one. And even with the bars and stuff, I find Some of them are quite sweet and then some are, some of them are savory. And I mean, I, I'm even going to use some bacon strips in the mix because it's nice and salty and that variety to keep your palate, um, interested, I suppose you might call it. Um, is, is really important, I think.
1: Yeah, totally. I think, I think it's Corey Wallace who once told me that when he does those 24 hour mountain bike events. You know, somewhere around hour, I don't know, nineteen. He just wants a baked potato, and I think he might actually eat a baked potato.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, Alan Lim's got his thing with the the baby baked potatoes in the in the back pocket, right? So,
1: all right, there you go. Spud is your bud. Um, is there any uh crossover or anything from your experience, all your experience on the road, that will help you at Unbound?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean. I suppose I'm fortunate in that I've got a pretty big, you know, lifetime of mileage in my legs, you know, so you kind of build this massive base from, from all my racing years. I mean, that, that I think is the biggest thing that will help me. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that there's a ton of crossover between the two. I mean, learning how to, I mean, Unbound is supposed to be crazy windy, so knowing how to draft properly and work together, you know, and maybe do a bit of an echelon, that kind of stuff will definitely come into play, I would imagine, towards the end of the day.
1: And uh, looking past Unbound, is there any other big gravel events that you have um, on your schedule?
0: Yeah, this year, it's like the return to racing. Um, yeah, the other, the other event we're going to go do is the Rift, which is uh, a 200-kilometer gravel day in, in Iceland. So that, that's, that's half vacation and half adventure. But that, that one, yeah, that's like an A-race that I'm definitely going to try and do my best at see if i can find the form again but um yeah there's that one and there's the reggie ramble here uh, in ontario it's a 200 kilometer day so those two events come in they are are in july and both of those i'm going to try and hit up and and be quite good at
1: tell me about the rift like uh, rift what um what's the gravel like because i feel like when we talk about different gravel races it's you almost need the the tasting notes for the rocks and the dirt and the stuff like that. but what do you know about sort of that that style of gravel?
0: Well, it's the Rift valley, so it's volcanic, and i think I think it's pretty rough. You know, Ted King had a video when he went a couple of years ago and he ate he actually tasted the rock oh. he he suggested not to do that. but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i think I think it's pretty rough and big. and so you know, one of the equipment choices i made, um, actually I made it last year when we did, we did a race called, um, what's it called the big red gravel run, which was really rocky. So after that, uh, knowing that we were going to do, uh, unbound, which is, you know, supposedly very flint, flinty rock. And then the, the rift with its, its, I think, bigger kind of rocky rocks, very technical terms here. Um, um
1: <laughs> no, I like it. I mean, we. I mean, we really are working on the language for gravel, and and like I said, I jokingly called them tasting notes, but it's like, wh- wine has been doing it for longer. We we need to figure out like rocky rocks versus sand.
0: Well, I mean, if, like the, the the gravel roads we're gonna ride around here. I mean, sometimes they're better than the paved roads. So
5: it's well, it, It's a
0: huge difference between what you might find. But I I decided I w- I put some cush cores in in the in the tires on the rims whatever you want to call it for a couple of reasons i mean one i think it's actually made the the tires handle better you know it, it's supposed to control the rebound on the tire and reduce the air volume or something like this and, and they feel really good and then I, I also got worried about smashing a rim on a rock and busting busting a, a carbon rim and figured well if I put a Cush core in and it saves the rim, then it's worthwhile, even if it's a bit more weight. So they've been a good investment, I think.
1: Well, Andrew, thank you for, for this chat and, and the tips and um, good luck. Good luck at the races and we, we should catch up after and see how they win. Yeah,
0: sounds good. I mean, the gravel is a big adventure. It's pretty fun. So I'm looking forward to it.
1: Michael Vandenham, we're going to talk gravel racing, but I have to admit, I think of you as a cyclocross racer first. You won cross nationals in 2017, 2018, and 19, and because of the pandemic and cancellations, you still have the Maple Leaf jersey. Do you think of yourself as a cyclocross racer first?
6: Absolutely. And I will for, I think, the foreseeable future as well. I, I enjoy gravel a lot. I, I'm a competitive person. So of course I want to do well in gravel, but I'll be, if I'm being totally honest, I'm still constructing my gravel schedule in a way that I think is going to put me in the best position to be successful as a cross racer. That's kind of goal number one. And, you know, the gravel scene is getting more and more competitive and harder and harder. You do actually, I showed up at some of the races earlier this year in maybe less than, than peak form. And you can't do that before we started recording here, we were talking about I, how I started racing gravel in 2018 and it is incredible to see how the field, how much more competitive and how much faster and how much stronger it is now four years later from that. Um, you know, the first gravel race I ever did was, was at that point it was called land run. Now it's mid South in 2018 and I, uh, you know, it's in March. So I did cross worlds, took, took a month off the bike and rode for two weeks and, and ended up getting second at, at land And there is no way that that would happen now. Like not a chance. I, I kind of tried to pull it off this year where I did cross worlds took only a couple weeks off and actually trained for mid South. And I got blown out the back of the pack with, you know, 40 miles to go or or 30 miles to go or something like that. And that, and that's just, a. I don't think I was riding less well. I think that's just a testament to saying that to, to you know how much faster the field is now and and how much more seriously people are taking it. There there wasn't gravel pros in 2018, and now there is.
1: You you've anticipated one of my questions because I I did want to talk about like the evolution of gravel that that you've seen in just those short four years and um yeah the fact that you need to focus. Uh, I guess I guess the same. Maybe it was set of cross way, way back when, you know, it's something Roadies did in the fall. Um, but um at least that's the that's the mythology, I guess. But um we know now that you, you have to specialize. But um although that well, Van Art and that Matthew Vanderpool seem to be able to jump between the two pretty easily.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And I think going back to the gravel question, you really do if you're really going to be there at the biggest races of the year. And, and by that, I'm probably, you know, I think Unbound is the biggest race of the year bar now. And I don't think anyone would really argue with me on that. If you're going to focus on doing well at that, you're looking at a 10, 11, maybe 12 hour effort. And that is not, you're not going to pull that off on the back of training that you're, you'd be doing for, you know, mountain bike world cups or road races or across season. Like you need to be focused on those type of efforts. And in a lot of ways, totally change your training to be focused on that type of event. And it might actually come at the sacrifice of being able to perform at some of those shorter disciplines. We've seen a few athletes now go from mountain bike World Cups to doing this longer distance stuff, um, like Keegan Swenson, um, Andrew Esperance, Haley. And I'm not sure they could go back and perform at the World Cup level. Now, I think we actually have really interestingly, Andrew and Haley are doing it right now. Um, so it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how that sort of unfolds throughout the season. But it's tough to train for both is what I'm saying. So I think that's why you see a lot of people focusing on one or the other.
1: And re- returning to um, Michael Vandenhem as cyclocrosser first idea, what um, are the elements that you can draw from these gravel races that you do predominantly I would say in the summer and the fall. What can you get out of these that, that can then help you when you go and focus full time on Cyclocross?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. And maybe I I sort of answered it a second ago um, by talking about how if you're gonna going to do something like unbound, you need to you need to focus on that. I think I'm not, I'm not doing Unbound. That's a pretty big omission from my calendar. And that's actually a very intentional omission because for me, anyways, I feel like that's too long. It takes too long to recover from an effort like that. I can't do the type of training that you need to do to perform at an event like that without compromising my training for cyclocross. So I've, uh, those really long 200 mile events are intentionally not in my calendar, but those five six maybe even seven hour events still are and the reason for that is one trying to steal a page from what a lot of the european cyclocross pros are doing mainly not not necessarily matthew and wout and and tom pitcock because they aren't like the rest of us they're (laughs) they're they're doing their own thing right and and it's not uh it might be futile to try to mimic that. But you look at people like, like say, Quentin Harriman's. He had a really good spring campaign and doing some of those longer races. He also had a really good cross campaign on the back of, of, of doing the Giro, Giro d'Italia last year. So what I saw there was how can I build my summer program where I, I can still be in North America, stay home, spend a lot of time at home, the place that I like to be, and get those hard, we'll call them classic type efforts in my legs, um, and do them at a time of year where it can actually serve the cross season. So that's why I think my, my calendar is a little bit front loaded. I'm doing a lot of my racing in April, May, and June doing some of those five, six, seven hour races. And then come July, I'm, I'm not doing any gravel races. I'm sort of flipping the script a little bit and and focusing on cross. But knowing that those big, long days, big, long race efforts that I did, and the training to prepare for those is actually going to set me up in a really good position for cyclocross.
1: You said you're not doing any gravel, but I think on your calendar, there's Trans Rockies Gravel Royale in August.
6: That's right. So I, I'm shutting it down in, in July, but I am doing Trans Rockies in August. And that's for a few reasons. One, I had the chance to go out and pre-ride a big chunk of that course last year. And it, it ended up getting canceled sort of very, very late in the game amid sort of a, a COVID spike in in the region, which was disappointing. But I mean, I think I think we all understand why that why that happened. But I got a chance to pre-ride a lot of that course earlier in the year. And it's like, it's spectacular out there. Kind of one of the other things I realized that I could do with gravel and wanted to do with gravel was... Us as a way to keep things interesting and fresh throughout the summer, so being able to go into the Rockies and do a race like that on a route that I wouldn't otherwise ride and go camping you know throughout the course of the race with my my with my wife and my dog is is something I just can't really turn down. and also the length of those stages there a lot of them are 80 to 100 kilometers, 80 to just over 100 kilometers. It actually fits really well into a cross build. It's a little bit shorter than your, a lot of your typical gravel races. They'll be, you know, they'll be three to four hours. So that's about a month before my cross season starts. I can incorporate that into my training plan and again, use it sort of as a springboard to get a little bit of, of race intensity, but not absolutely bury myself um, into a big, big hole that I can't come out of before, before the season starts.
1: Does it help? that those the Trans Rockies is a 4-day thing and uh, and those races are you know back to back for 4 days
6: that's something that's uh, that's actually something that's really appealing to me about the event i haven't done a stage race in quite a while you know i when i was racing for red truck years ago i used to do all of super week which isn't actually a stage race but it's a bunch of crits back to back i did mount hood i did the cascade cycling classic and i always felt like i responded really really well to stage racing and came out of those multi-day race efforts really strong and and felt good throughout. So that's definitely something that's appealing to me, like finding opportunities to put that into my summer season. So yeah, it's appealing. I think it also means that the days are a little bit shorter. So instead of having one monstrous eight-hour day where you have to take three or four or seven recovery days after just to come out of that effort, you get to do four days of racing that are a little bit shorter and you can do back to back to back. You get four really solid training efforts in there, four really good chances to race. And then you can take a little bit of a rest period. But the total sum of that is is probably better training than just one eight-hour effort followed by a number of, of days off.
1: You mentioned that you are skipping unbound uh, for uh, a very good reason. The, the the mileage doesn't jive with your... With your uh, Wider goals, and instead you're doing Lost and Found. It's a, it's another gravel event, and I don't know a lot about this one. Uh, what can you tell me about Lost and Found?
6: Oh, Lost and Found is a great race. As as my friend Amity said, um, one of the biggest injustices in gravel racing is that Lost and Found and and Unbound are on the same day, um, <laughs> and it's true. It's Lost and Found is a. It's about a hundred miles in the Sierra Nevada part of. Of California so kind of like I'll fly into Reno and you basically it's on the very close to the to the Nevada California border there and it's just really really beautiful. it's um the Sierra Buttes and it's like kind of these big, really nice smooth fast gravel roads, big mountain climbs. And I would say there's probably a lot of people there who have done unbound at one point or another like myself and just realize that either, unbound wasn't for them or it took them too long to recover from that. And they just wanted to do something different. So it's a little bit of a different vibe because people go and like, I'm going to go up there and, and camp for the weekend, right? A little bit more of a hangout kind of vibe of a race. And you have this really great, awesome five hour effort thrown into the middle of it.
1: Hmm. Sounds pretty cool.
6: It really is. I, I really, really like lost and found. Like it, it it would be sad to miss it if and and I probably will at some point when I do decide to go back and and actually give Unbound a proper crack.
1: And I noticed on your schedule there is a mountain bike race. What's bringing you to the Canada Cup?
6: Ah, great question. Um, proximity would be one of them. <laughs> Whistler's only a couple hours from me, so. Um, that's easy enough. The other reason is I'm actually doing a bunch of coaching on the mountain bike for a club called Devo, which is out of Vancouver. And our athletes are racing that race, and I'm gonna have the opportunity to be there and be coaching at the same time. And I sort of figured, why not? Um, I, you know, although I'm not a mountain bike racer by any stroke, I probably spend as much time on my mountain bike as any of the other bikes that I own. I'm usually out two or, or three times a week riding on the mountain bike. And I really enjoy it. I actually did an enduro, what would that be a week and a half ago for the first time ever, just, just kind of for kicks and like, I love it. I don't know if I'm ever going to be a mountain bike racer properly, but it's like, it's such a great way just to switch up your training a little bit and forces you into, you know, taking some steps technically that you maybe wouldn't otherwise take.
1: I want to switch up a bit and talk tech. I, I sometimes uh, tell uh, readers of the magazine that I had your bike before you did. Um, you have the giant Revolt Advanced Pro Zero. That's your, your gravel whip. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about it uh, before we hit record that um, like we're still in the, the sort of peak bike shortage at the moment. And uh but at that time the media bike came to me and then it had to get to you and I'm really curious how you I want to talk a bit about it because I didn't race it at at a huge event. So um how has it been in full race mode?
6: Oh, it's been I really really like that bike. So I actually was in the month of April, I did three events and three very very different events. I started out by racing Sea Otter, the Fuego XC race, the ADK XC race. And I actually did it on my Revolt, which in retrospect was maybe not the best decision. Having full suspension would have been the best decision for that bike, but I did it on the Revolt. And then I went and I did Paris Ancaster, I think it was two weeks later, also on the Revolt. And then I also did Belgian Waffle Ride on the Revolt. And those are three totally different ends of the spectrum, if there can be Ends of the triangle, totally different ends of the triangle <laughs> as far as gravel racing goes. You have a mountain bike race, you have Paris to Ancaster, and then you have like a long gravel race with big road stretches in the middle of it. So, one of the things that I was like blown away by is one that I fit 2.25s on that bike, like 2.25 inch mountain bike tires. And that's what I raced at the Fuego with a dropper post. For Paris to Ancaster, I flipped the chip, so made the bike a little bit shorter put 33c tires on 33c like file treads on still kept the dropper post on and then for bwr kept it in the short setting and put 36c strata like challenge strata bianca so basically a road tire on there and i was like i thought it was kind of fun that i could take this one bike and like take these three different races that were so very different and you know what all things considered like it maybe wasn't the fastest bike for, for the Fuego, but I don't think there's many other bikes. There, there wasn't many other gravel bikes that would want to do that course, put it that way.
1: I, you anticipated another one of my questions. I was going to ask you about the, the flip chip because um, what, what it does is it, it changes the wheelbase ever so slightly. It either makes it a little more nimble or a little more, let's say, stable. And, and I was wondering if, yeah, if, if it was something you, you really would use depending from race to race, but you answered that, I guess.
6: Yeah. And I have been using it, like like you said. And the other benefit that having the flip chip does is it gives you a little bit more tire clearance on the rear. So my default, I think, as a cross racer is I like I like snappy feeling bikes. So I'm typically running it in the short setting. That's just how I like my bikes to feel. But I think if you were doing either one, something like Unbound, where frankly, there's not a lot of turning, and you want a slightly more stable bike, I'd probably set it up in the long position. Or something where, like I did for the Fuego, I want as much tire volume as possible. The, the long position is really good for that as well.
1: How do you think gravel events will continue to evolve? You've, we've seen a lot of change since, since 2018, but yeah, even before that, there was, like I guess, rapid change in evolution. Um, yeah, look into your crystal ball. What, what do you see coming up uh, in the future of gravel?
6: Oh, that's a great question because I really do think the discipline is kind of finding itself and there's also continued, I don't know what you'd call it, professionalization of the sport. So I think one of the changes that's coming is because there are some stakes for winning a gravel race now, the things like how the finish is set up are starting to change because there was a time early in, in gravel racing where it's like the course was just kind of loaded onto your onto your GPS and people found their way to the finish. And if there was a stop sign in the last hundred meters, it didn't really matter because you were probably riding by yourself anyways. And that's that's pretty rapidly shifting. You know, there was like an eight up sprint or something like that in mid-South this year. So I think one of the things I've seen this year is gravel races are doing like actual road closures for the last bit of the race and and things like that. And that's a pretty that's a big logistical undertaking for the race organizer and also a pretty big switch from the fully unsupported, here's the route, go do it type approach. As far as the course length, I don't know. It's been What's been really fascinating to me is a lot of races are starting to or have always offered a shorter kind of distance. Um, like there was a 70 mile distance at Belgian Waffle Ride, that 100 mile distance at Unbound. And it seems like for a lot of people, that's they're happy doing that. They want to do that. And I'm what I'm really curious is, is there going to be, is that going to become part of the race or a serious race in and of itself? Um, I don't know if that'll be the case, but I'm just curious to see, like say at Unbound 100, is there going to end up being a really serious race category there as well? Or is that always going to be for people who never, you know, who just didn't quite feel like they're ready for the 200? hundred? Well, we'll see, I guess. But as far as like terrain and everything, I think it's it's so regional, right? Even how you set up your bike is so, so regional. A California gravel race feels different because of the terrain than something that you do in the Mid-South or the Midwest or whatever part of the ca- country you want to call Kansas and, and Oklahoma, right? Um, and that has nothing to do with, that just straight up has to do with terrain.
1: The thing I find uh, so interesting about gravel, and this came up in my, uh, recent conversation with Andrew Randall, who's targeting uh, Unbound this year, is that we got talking about different types of gravel. And, like, this speaks to your re- regionality. And it, I, s- I feel like we're still working out the the language for gravel. Like, how would you describe this gravel? I think Andrew used the word uh, phrase, it's more gravelly gravel. And it's just like, <laughs> we just really don't know how to, like, we can say, oh, what tires are you running? And I think, oh, I think this course it would suit like this, that, or the other thing. But, like, it's really hard to convey, yeah, what you're riding on exactly.
6: Oh, absolutely. Like, there's the the clay, even even in a single race. I'll use Mid-South as an example here. There are some roads that are basically just clay. And there's not a piece of gravel in those. But there's still gravel, right? And then there's other roads. You turn a corner and it's it's all kind of sharp rocks. There's rail trail. That's gravel. And then there's, like, the super sandy stuff that you see in chunks of California. So it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. And I even find like the way I set up my bike is very, very influenced by where I live. I live somewhere where a lot of our gravel is straight up and straight down. A lot of it's on FSRs and a lot of it is super rocky and rough. So I tend to go for a wider gear range. I I love my dropper post. It's still on my bike and it probably is going to stay there all season. And I tend to run bigger tires than than someone who is maybe, you know, riding on rail trails in Ontario would do. So, yeah, I think think it's a lot like mountain biking that way, right? Like, what is a mountain bike course? It's like, well, even if I call myself a cross-country racer in BC, my default setting, the way I set up my mountain bike, is going to be super different than how someone else is going to set it up in a different part of the country.
1: Michael, it's really great talking gravel with you. We should uh, talk cross when, when the season arrives. Um, I, I have a rule at, at Canadian Cycling Magazine. You're not allowed to say cross is coming until at least August. So we won't say that um, because it's gravel season and gravel is here. <laughs> but it's, it's good talking with you about the rocky stuff.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Matt.
1: All right. Good luck at the races. Thank you. that's the episode it is written and edited by me matthew puro i had help from matt hansen thank you matt
2: no worries
1: (laughs) all right on and also terry mccall pitched in uh the episode is produced by adam killick he composed the music too thanks also to ontario creates for its support Matt, you you up for another dawn ride soon?
2: Am I up for it? I'm ready for it. I've been training for it every day.
1: Oh, really? For our next, like, (laughs) early weekend ride? Stretching.
2: Going to bed early. I'm ready.
1: All right. Well, yeah, we should do that. Maybe take a different route?
2: Yeah, my route this time.
1: Oh, your route. Oh, That's fair. Then you can ambush me on the hills that you know are coming.
2: Downhill the whole way.
1: Okay. Looking forward to it. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Please rate and review the show. Ride safely, and I'll talk to you later.